Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 9 through verse 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was tempted in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you that you are speaking. We thank you that you have opened your word to us in this divine self-disclosure. And we pray that you would enable us by your spirit's power to see, to hear, to believe. Would you pull away any calluses on our hearts, any numbness or dullness of spirit which is present either by our own sin or simply by the numbing effects of so many voices and so much noise in this world. In this moment, would you quiet all of that, Lord, and enable us to hear from you, to come as Mary and sit at your feet together. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor And remain unheard, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, King of glory, speak. Lord, speak. Father, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, I possibly belabored the point that Jesus serves as these simultaneously the spirit empowered, spirit anointed Messiah, who is a fulfillment of the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant of Isaiah. And he is simultaneously the Lord Yahweh who dispenses the spirit. So that we have in Mark chapter 1, a beautiful Christology that's blossoming before us if we are wanting to see it. It's not as theologically poignant, maybe, as John chapter 1, but it is is rich and deep and true, representing, as we just confessed together, that Jesus is truly God and he is truly man. He is truly God and he is truly man. He is truly man in the sense that he is the spirit-empowered, spirit-anointed Messiah. And he is truly God because here in the New Testament, prophecies that are describing Yahweh are attributed to Jesus. And a part of his Messiah, his Messiah simply means anointed one. It's also where we get the word Christ, 
Messiah is a, a Hebrewism, and gr- Christ is the Greek part of it. Uh, so it's a sort of a, both of them mean the same thing. Jesus, it's not as, as I've said before, Jesus Christ, that's not like on his driver's license, it doesn't say Christ, comma, Jesus, right? It's, it's Jesus of Nazareth who is the Christ. So it is a title, it's a declaration of him being the servant, uh, suffering servant of the Lord who is coming to rescue his people. That he has a divine mandate from his father to rescue his people. And we'll get into that in just a second. But a part of his messianic role as the king who accomplishes and is given victory over sin, darkness, Satan, death, etc., is that he must identify with those he has come to save. In order for Jesus to fulfill the mission, fulfill the mandate that he has been given by God, the Father, he must identify with those for whom he came to save. The writer of Hebrews says it most poignantly that the children also in chapter two, verse 14, I'm not going to read it, but if you want to write that down and reference it later, but that the children partake in flesh and blood. So he must partake in flesh and blood that if the savior is going to save only a savior with the makeup of Jesus is actually going to save truly God, truly man, because if the Messiah is going to save us, he must be like us. He must identify with us. If he's going to serve as our savior, as the one who's going to take the wrath of God due for our sin, he must be like us. He must be like us. But not only that, if he's going to serve as our high priest, he must be tempted as we are, yet without sin. Again, Hebrews chapter 4. That we need this sort of savior. And dear ones, there's a reason why Scripture says there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. Because there's no one anywhere offers a Savior like this. Described on these terms, who does what Jesus does, there's no one else. There's no one else that is truly God and is truly man. If you are looking to another savior, perhaps yourself or some other God of this world, I would encourage you to repent and look to Jesus. But in that spirit of Jesus identifying with his people, Jesus identifying with his people, we come to the account of Jesus's baptism. And the more I've pressed into this, the bigger it got. It was like one of those things you, you crawl through this tiny little hole. Like you know, I've, I used to be infatuated with them. Now I just simply are interested in them. But if you've ever been to a cavern, like somewhere in Virginia near where my, my dad grew up, there's Shenandoah Caverns and there's Luray Caverns. And certain parts of the country are just prone to have these caverns. South Carolina, we get sand. They get limestone and things that get carved out. So maybe in Kentucky, you've been to Mammoth Cave would be similar. Uh, so anyways, but that you, you go down, and I remember one of these, I don't remember exactly, maybe it's Luray, but you go down this sort of tunnel, and they have stairs, they built it all up, and they've kind of ruined that part of it. Uh, it's sort of not wild anymore, but you go down through the small opening, 
And all of a sudden it just blossoms into this big, huge, and if they flip on the lights, you can see this huge, vast chambers underground beneath your feet. That's what's proved true about the baptism of Jesus is just a few verses here, a couple of verses in Mark's gospel. And as I studied it, it was like it was more and more light shown. So I can't quite get all of this to you. So I'm sorry. OK, maybe I'll, I'll I should just do a series on the baptism of Jesus uh, or maybe I'll write something for you guys. Anyways, but it's such a rich text because here we have Jesus who is sinless, right? He's been tempted in every way that we have, which is the sort of the, the middle part of the passage that I read. He, he was driven out into the, the, into the wilderness by the Spirit, and he's tempted so that Jesus knows what it is to be a person. He knows what it is to go, undergo trial and temptation. He knows what it is to be surrounded by sin, and to be baited into it. He knows, and yet he is sinless, and so he's able to deliver us. So he identifies with us with, with our temptation, but he identifies with us with this physical act of baptism. And so if we're going to understand this in John's baptism, right? This is John the Baptist, not John the Apostle. This is John the Baptist baptizing in the wilderness. And Jesus goes out to the wilderness to be baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. So we have to ask the question, what is this baptism? What's happening here? Well, it's, it, it's a ceremony surrounded or, or utilizing water. And water in the Old Testament has a fourfold. It probably has other meanings or symbolisms. But there's at least four. It at least is symbolic of four things. One of God. Um, Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. So that the, the fountain of living waters there in Jeremiah 2 is God himself. So water represents God, but it also represents a renewal. That there will be streams in the desert over throughout the book of Isaiah. But also, we maybe think of those things. Water represents God, represents renewal or refreshment, possibly even regeneration. But water also represents cleansing. And typically when you think about John's baptism, you think about cleansing. That there is a confession of sin and the waters come over the person and they are, in fact, repenting of their sin and being cleansed. And this is what Scripture says, as I mentioned last time, that there, there is a baptism of repentance, leaving sin for the forgiveness of sins. They're confessing their sins. And so it's so they might be washed clean. Isaiah chapter 1. Wash yourselves. Quit doing evil. Do right. Wash. So there's this idea of cleansing. And that's definitely at play here. But the thing that we miss, perhaps, the thing that we miss most often about the nature of water in the Old Testament is that it carries the weight of judgment. Water in the Old Testament is a supreme picture of the judgment of God upon his adversaries. And it, this idea is picked up two prominent places in the New Testament. So you guys tracking with me? Water represents God. It represents renewal. It represents cleansing. But the sort of forgotten aspect is that it represents judgment. 
What are two places, if for you Bible scholars, two places in the Old Testament where water is used as judgment upon the, the enemies of God? Parting of the Red Sea and the flood. What was the other one? Those are the two I had in my mind. There are other places where water provides uh, resources for God's people, where Moses you know, strikes the rock and the water pours out. Uh, that's a great reference. Uh, but used as judgment at the, at the Red Sea, and then before that, at the great deluge, the great flood of the earth. And at the great flood of the earth, and at the Red Sea, who goes under and dies? The bad people. God's people go through the Red Sea on dry land. And then Egypt and his Pharaoh and his Egyptian army go into the Red Sea and they are swallowed up and perish. A picture of God's judgment upon the wicked king and the wicked nation. At the great flood, there is Noah who is in chapter 6 of Genesis is said to receive grace, favor from the Lord. And he and his household, his Children, their, their spouses, they come onto the ark with the animals. They are born on an ark on the water. And all of the people who have rejected the Lord, who are despising God and rebelling against Him and who refuse to repent, are submerged and perish. There are two places in the New Testament where those two events are used, are, are referenced in terms of baptism. So first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, 1 through 5. Um, and I'll just, I'm going to, it's 1 Corinthians 10, and the other one is 1 Peter 3. So I want to read these to you and just sort of press this picture of judgment, and then we'll come back to Jesus. Okay, that's our goal in this moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, right? This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth. Crazy, crazy bunch of Christians. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, referencing the pillar of cloud that led the people um, out of Egypt. They were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized. You see it? You see it? They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. So when Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, begins to unpack... Now just consider where we are. He's unpacking this history of the salvation of the people of Israel out of Egypt. And he's writing to Corinth. Where is Corinth? Is it in Israel? No. It's in modern day Greece. These are a bunch of Greeks. And yet it bears significance for them. That they were baptized into Moses. They were connected into following Moses. His teachings, and they were brought in through the covenant of, to Moses. That's another subject that we're not going to 
press into right now. But I want you to see that the substance that they were believing as they were passing through the sea is the same substance that we are believing. They drank from Christ. Their their rock is, is referencing Moses striking the rock and the people drinking. And saying Jesus followed them and supplied them and they were the... He was the substance of their faith because they believed the promises of God as they had them revealed to them at that point in salvation history. But this is a picture both of baptism and of judgment upon God's enemies. First Peter chapter 3, even more poignantly on the, the, the reference of judgment. I'm going to read 18 through 22 of 1 Peter chapter 3. For, just because part of this is just fantastic. Part of it's really confusing, and I'm not going to explain it this morning. Okay? We don't have enough time. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. What a fantastic picture of the gospel work of our Lord. That he goes through this, he suffers the righteous for the unrighteous. He identifies with us so that he might bring us from where we are in the muck, in the mire, dead in sins and trespasses, and that he might bring us to God. He identifies with us that he might bring us to God. So good, y'all. And this is the point of the sermon. I'm not going to have some great marching orders to go do one, two, three. The marching orders from this are believe Jesus. Believe this is the gospel. Look at what your Lord has done for you. Rejoice and obey him. So, okay, I I got kind of off there. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, baptism, which corresponds to this. Baptism, which corresponds to this. What is the this referring to? Noah and the flood. Baptism, your baptism, if you've been baptized, corresponds to the flood. The other part that you need to be processing is not only has Jesus identified with you, but what does your baptism mean? I'll mention that again in a second. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. I need, I'm not going to explain the spirits in prison thing right now, okay? Uh, Jesus preached in the Holy Spirit. This is not Jesus transporting himself somewhere else, but the Holy Spirit is present in the days of Noah, and Noah is described as a preacher of righteousness. Okay, I explained it a little bit. So, the Spirit is preaching in the days of Noah. The thing I do want to press against This baptism now saves you does not mean that baptism automatically regenerates. It has been a false teaching or a wrong teaching, a heterodox teaching in the life of the church that some parties, some denominations continue to uphold. That you, in order for you to be regenerated, in order for you to be saved, you must be baptized. There are Christians who believe that or 
branches that believe that. So either they, uh, they baptize babies and they apply that principle to them, or they do that to people who confess faith in Jesus. Both of them are erroneous on that account. Baptism, this is called baptismal regeneration, if you're curious, and it's a wrong teaching. Notice what it says. Baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt, right? It's not the physical act of baptism, simply getting wet, because I don't know about you. I didn't take a bath today, but I, I took a shower and I had the removal of dirt that, has, that it was not a spiritual, I mean, I guess it was, it wasn't a spiritual act, so I didn't stink for all of you. There's a good distance here, though, but... Um, But baptism that is connected to faith as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism as as connected to, related to, derived from faith saves you. So as an appeal to God for a good conscience who has gone uh, uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ... So in both of these events, both at the flood and at the Red Sea, judgment comes in the form of water. When you think about the baptism of John, uh, John the Baptist, that this is a continuation of the Old Testament. John is in very much, he, he has much more in common with someone like Isaiah or Jeremiah than what he might have in common with Paul in the sense of the, the status of his ministry. He is this bridge prophet. But if you were to go read his, uh, in Matthew chapter 3, where he talks about the baptism, and, and in Luke also, where he talks about the axe is laid at the root of the tree, and he comes to the Pharisees who's come to see the baptism that he's performing in the wilderness, and he says to them, Woe to you! Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? That's judgment language. So not only does the Bible attach judgment language to the water of the flood and of the water of the Red Sea, but the Bible attaches judgment language to the baptism of John. So that those who are coming and submitting themselves to the baptism of John are recognizing that they, in fact, have broken the covenant. They, in fact, have broken the law of God and they deserve the wrath of God. It is a recognition of they being subject to the wrath of God and rather saying, God, would you forgive me? I see that I have broken your law. I see that I have sinned. And now would you make me clean and avert your judgment from me? And this is what, right? This is one of the, at least should be a component. You might not all have all of that up and running when you get baptized, and that's totally fine. But when you think about your baptism, you should think about it as you are recognizing, right, the ABCs of the faith. You're admitting that you're a sinner. When you admit that you're a sinner, you're admitting that you deserve the judgment of God. You deserve hell. You deserve distance from him. You deserve separation from him. You deserve wrath. You're a child of wrath just like the rest. But God, if it were not for God in Christ, you would be destined to hell. And so that's part of the, the symbolism of baptism is this idea of judgment and of death. So when Jesus, and I won't, I won't belabor that, I find it powerful and fascinating but you, hopefully you see the picture, this connection between the waters of baptism and judgment. But what you need to see is that the same element, the same thing 
can for one party be a means or a picture of salvation and for another party be a means of judgment. So go back to the Red Sea. The picture of the walls of water there, that's a picture of salvation for the people of Israel. The picture of the walls of water crashing down on Pharaoh and his army, that's a picture of judgment. Same element, same place, two different people. Paul, when he writes in 2 Corinthians, he talks about preaching the gospel, that it's an aroma of Christ either from life to life or death to death. That the same person... I mean, excuse me, two people can hear the same gospel message. One will reject it to their eternal condemnation and others will believe it to their eternal salvation. What this ought to make you think about regarding your own baptism, if you have been baptized, is where are you now? Because having gone through the waters of baptism, you have made a public profession of faith so that unbelief now... Uh, not just unbelief, not just sin, but apostasy now. Leaving the faith now has greater, more severe consequences than if you never went through the baptism before. You understand what I'm saying? That if you're baptized, professing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and then you go out to live your life as though Jesus is not Lord, and in fact you are Lord, you are bringing greater condemnation upon yourself than if you were never baptized before. That should sober us because there are many, I believe, just to just take the Southern Baptist Convention, we'll pick on our own, Right, we're at roughly ballpark, we say 15 million members. 15 million members of churches. You want to know, and I'm not even, this, isn't, this is pre-COVID numbers. I have no idea post-COVID. Much smaller. But pre-COVID numbers, you would have roughly four to five million show up in Southern Baptist churches on a given Sunday. Right, that's roughly a third. I'm not a mathematician, but I think that's right. So you have a third of the people who are professing Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior worshiping on Sunday morning. Sort of bare, this is like bare bones Christianity. I'm going to go to church. If you don't, I don't know what, 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 what's, what's next on bare bones Christianity. So you have a third of the people. So I'm going to wage, I don't have spiritual goggles. I don't have regeneration lenses. But Jesus said you can know a tree by its fruit. And so you have people who have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who refuse to live like it. I'm going to wager that within the church there are many people who do not have saving faith. And because they have made this public profession and because they have gone through the waters of baptism, they are under greater condemnation than our pagan neighbors. And they are on our membership rolls. And that's a, that's a whole other thing to talk about. Soapbox, but a huge point. It's something that since I've been here for now, what, seven years and ten days or whatever, membership in the local church must be meaningful. 
This is not a this is not a time for this, but this is not a country club. Right? When the church says, "We will baptize you." We are saying, "Yes, we see a credible profession of faith in you. We see evidence of the Lord's work in your life so much as is possible for humans. We say, "Yes, you look like a Christian. You should be baptized as a Christian." It doesn't make you a Christian, but it's a recognition of the local church so that when people do this, right? We're we're two-thirds of people who claim to be Jesus, and you wonder why America's in shambles. It's because the American church has taken Christ and his gospel lightly and for granted. And that brings, when we indulge in that for the sake of inflating numbers, so that when we send in our ACP, our annual, annual church profile, we can show, hey, we've gained this many people. We've baptized this many people. Look how great we are, right? Pastors, we're terrible at this. How's your church? Well, we have this many people. How is it now that COVID's there? It's even worse now. In the sense of how we want to gamesmanship and compare one another. But when the local church indulges in inflating numbers simply to look better in the eyes of other churches or in the world or to ourselves, we're bringing disparagement upon the name of Jesus. And dear ones, that will inevitably impact negatively our mission. Because you go talk to an unbeliever. You talk to an unbeliever, especially in the South, especially in the Bible Belt. Eventually, they're going to come around to somebody that they know who claims the name of Jesus and they don't look any different than them. Or or the person who claims the name of Jesus actually looks worse than them. And you can't argue because it's true. This was not intended. It's not intended. But baptism has this picture of judgment attached to it. And it's one that should sober us so that when we're baptized into the death of Christ and we're raised to walk in newness of life, we're raised to walk because we have new life within us. We want to live a different sort of life. If you have Christ living in you, you want to live towards Jesus and you want to hate sin. Do you understand? How often have we had the conversation of have I been counseling and sin? I mean, forever I've had these kind of conversations. How far, and just put yourself in any kind of context, how far can I go without sinning? Whether it be in a dating relationship, whether it be at the bar, whether it be at the buffet, whether it be on the phones gossiping, how far can I go before I sin? Dear ones, that is not the question. Newness of life runs the other direction from sin. Okay. That was a Lord have mercy. So count your baptism. Look at the waters. There's judgment there. There's life, but there's judgment. And Jesus identifies with us when he who has no sin walks into the waters of baptism. Acknowledging that though he has no sin of his own, he comes bearing the sins of his people. 
And so Jesus' baptism here is a foreshadowing and a consecration of what he's going to accomplish on the cross. For he who knew no sin became sin. The sinners belonged in the baptismal waters, confessing sin for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus goes into the baptismal waters to take away our sin. Saying, I will take their judgment. I will take their wrath. I will take their separation. I will take their pain. I will take their brokenness. He who knew no sin became sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 tells us, He who knew no sin became sin. And it wasn't just at the end. It wasn't that all the sins of the world were dumped on Jesus as soon as he got on the cross. All of the sins of the world are already being poured out upon Christ here as he walks into the waters. Saying, I will bear it. And Christian, as the devil would condemn you, and as your own conscience and heart would condemn you, do not look to yourself. Look to the one who says, I have paid it all. Look to the one who on that cross, the sinless Lamb of God said, it is finished. Your sin has been crucified. The record of debt held against you, Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 or chapter 1, has been nailed to the cross. He triumphs over our enemies there. Our victory is there. And so remember your baptism. Be humbled. Be humbled by the picture of judgment. But then rejoice. Rejoice because the judgment that was due to you and to me. The wrath due to us. Was poured out upon our Jesus. His body was broken. His blood was shed. Dear ones, those were our nails. That was our shame. It was our guilt. And yet he took it. He took it according to the plan of the triune God, and he took it. And you know what we get? He gets all of our guilt. You know what we receive? We receive we receive the righteousness that comes by grace through faith. So if there's anything I want from you today, two things. Rejoice in this savior and go and walk in newness of life. If you've never trusted this savior, maybe you've never heard this before. Maybe you've been in churches all your life and all you've ever heard is that you're not good enough. You've got to try harder, do better. Quit this, quit doing that, do this, give this. And I'm here to tell you that those things aren't the gospel. That's the law. The gospel says Jesus did it. Now go live this way. So would you put your trust in him? Not in your ability to obey or not do things. But put your trust in the one who identified with us. Took our judgment upon him. Bore our sin and our wrath. Took it and buried it in the grave. And rose victorious. And as we remember the resurrection of Jesus. We know that though we are bound up in a broken world and broken flesh. Assailed by Satan and sin still. One day... God will arise. And when God arises, 
so will his people. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would now move in power. That these words, if there is anything that is not of you, it would be forgotten. But the things that are of you, would you as our king who subdues our enemies... Take these seeds of your word and your truth and plant them in our hearts that faith might grow for the first time leading to a confession of faith in Jesus or that maybe today fledgling faith would grow stronger. And for those who have grown these oaks of righteousness, that you would guard them from rot, that you would take your gospel and create in your people hearts that worship and rejoice in Jesus. I pray we would never get over Jesus. We love you, Lord, because you have first loved us. Have mercy. Amen. Would you stand as we respond?